Hi, you're now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by C4 Anacraft with me, Susan Onyango. This episode, to coincide with World Refugee Day, shares ongoing work to address energy and food security, taking into consideration environmental concerns in refugee settings in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda. We will also shed light on why a gender-inclusive approach is critical in the refugee context. And now joining us from Kenya is Mary Njenga. Mary is a bioenergy research scientist with World Agroforestry, and she's based in Nairobi, Kenya. And with us from the United States is uh, Ruth Mendham, Associate Director for Gender Initiatives and an Assistant Professor of Research in the Office of International Programs, College of Agricultural Sciences at the Pennsylvania State University. Welcome, Mary and Ruth. Thank you. Thank you. So now I will let Mary and Ruth tell us a bit about themselves and the work that they do and why they like what they do. Mary. I work on uh, bioenergy in Eastern and Southern Africa region, but also in other regions like Ghana. And the work that I'm involved in is looking at uh, sustainable production systems for bioenergy, for example, tree-based energy and utilization. So I look at the whole system of uh, sustainable production and efficient utilization. And my work also involves looking at how does bioenergy interact with the environment in respect to climate change, for example, and how is bioenergy contributing to livelihoods and uh, how does it need to be integrated in other development agenda? Oh, very interesting, Mary. And um, Ruth, would love to hear from you now. Yeah, thanks. So um, I'm a rural sociologist by training. Um, what I'm really interested in is, is people's everyday life and in particular, um, how women um, manage their households and their lives, how, how all the different pieces get balanced and pulled together so that all of us get to show up on a daily basis and serve ourselves, our communities, and our families. And so the work that I'm doing with Mary is particularly interesting because we're looking at a group of truly impressive human beings. Um, both refugees and host community members um, are dealing with, with a really difficult situation. They're dealing with displacement, they're dealing with insufficient resources, um, they're dealing with insecurity and, um, and, and a lack of control over their lives. And yet, when you walk through either camps or settlements, depending on which country you're in, um, it, it really feels like you're in a village anywhere else in, in a rural part of East Africa. There are homes, there are kitchens, there are uh, children going to school, there are crops being grown. These are people who, despite really challenging circumstances, um, have managed to build lives for themselves. Oh, very interesting. Now to the topic of the day. Mary, how would you describe the connection between energy and food insecurity in refugee contexts? Um, when we look at energy and uh, food security nexus in refugee settlement, uh, one thing that comes in mind is what population are we talking about in Africa? And uh, in Africa, 
hosts over 6 million refugees. And uh, looking at the energy sources in these refugee settlements, uh, we find that uh, it's mainly firewood and charcoal. And one of the challenge is that uh, wood fuel, firewood and charcoal is faced with a lot of negative attitude due to its uh, negative health and environmental impacts. And therefore not considered as a priority, for example, for development, even if there are a lot of opportunities to make it sustainable. Mm -hmm. So coming from that aspect of firewood and charcoal being the main source of cooking energy in refugee settlements, then uh, we look at the, how does that link to food security? And uh, we find that the food aid that is received by the refugee uh, families is mainly dry food, like maize and beans. And uh, it requires a very long period of cooking. When you look at the refugee context, is that uh, some of them uh, go out to get firewood from the bushes or they receive relief energy in terms of firewood, for example, in Northern Kenya. They are given some firewood uh, to meet their needs. But what you find is that uh, the cooking energy that they receive leaves a deficit of about 80%. They're doing all sorts of coping strategies to cope with this shortage. One is that uh, the food aid that they receive, they use it as a currency to buy firewood from the host communities. So what they do is that they get, for example, they get food that is worth five days and they exchange it with the host communities and they get firewood that they use for three days. What they also do is that they get the food that they get as aid, they sell it, get the money and use it to buy firewood. Therefore, then they are left food insecure. And what we are finding is that 95% of the households, for example, in Karobeye refugee settlement in uh, northern Kenya, are involved in this coping strategy of exchanging food or selling food to access cooking fuel. And uh, to also be able to cope with this energy shortage and food shortage is that they skip breakfast mainly and they skip lunch and mainly depending on dinner as the main meal. And therefore, when you look at the situation of having inadequate cooking energy, has an implication on making the food uh, supply uh, be in shortage. And this is where we are finding the energy and food nexus meeting in the refugee settlements and also in the host communities. And what we are finding is that when the host communities have firewood, the refugees have the food which they have been given as aid and then they exchange it. So there is some trade going on and leaving both of them uh, food or energy insecure.
That's a very interesting perspective, Mary, because a lot of times when um, people think of re refugees, they think of their food needs first, but energy is often overlooked. Ruth, from your perspective, um, what is the connection between energy and food security in refugee contexts? Well, I think as Mary's just said, the energy component tends to be overlooked. And, and that's particularly unfortunate because we're talking about places that are geographically fairly marginal, arid lands, um, places with, without a lot of forest cover, for example. And so um, if we're talking about the situation that you have, for example, most notably in northern Kenya, but it's, but it's also true um, in Uganda, where uh, host community members are supposed to be providing um, for, for cost, of course, um, firewood for refugees to cook with, um, what we're really talking about is women going out into very desolate and harsh environments carrying wood on their heads for tens of kilometers sometimes. And so, you know, we had heartrending situations where, for example, women would show us where the hair on their heads had been permanently worn away because they had carried wood for so many miles for so many days. I mean, they've been doing it for years. And so the physical damage done, and, and it's not that men aren't involved in providing wood fuels, they are sometimes, but for the most part, this is women and they're doing it on foot and they're, and they're walking through very desolate areas. Um, we have seen women who've been attacked by wildlife there certainly is a certain level of, of violence that's human-based. So these are these host community women are encountering truly daunting conditions in order to make a living selling firewood to refugees. If you're thinking about the logic of this, this is very, very poor and vulnerable people making a living selling a product to people who have literally nothing and are being supported by food rations coming from far away. So this is this is a situation that that places everyone at risk. And of course there is environmental damage. I mean if we're talking about walking 20 kilometers and some of these places are very hot under harsh conditions you know, you're going to take the tree that's there when you when you find it. And and so, you know, it's easy to uh, blame uh, the refugees or the host communities or the people living in these conditions for harvesting trees that should be left intact. Um, but when you see it from the perspective of of these households and 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 of these harvesters, um, they're they're in truly desperate circumstances. So one of the things that our project does, is look for opportunities to recycle organic waste that are already present in these settlements and camps so that women aren't going out and trying to scrounge fuels um, from the countryside. And that's, and that's a real possibility. The other piece of it is, is charcoal production. If charcoal can be produced more efficiently, then obviously 
that reduces the amount of wood that has to be collected. And the other piece is that Mary's been working for, for many years on projects that help women to make briquettes out of charcoal dust, which again means, you know, anything you can do to keep people from having to go out and collect scarce wood products is a benefit in terms of providing more energy for cooking, but also protecting women, whether it's host community women or refugee women, um, from uh, potential violence and just the exhaustion of carrying these heavy loads for such long distances. Okay, so um, as a follow-up to that, Ruth, why is it important to think about gender and inclusion while working in refugees uh, context? You've talked about um, insecurity, uh, you've talked about the issues of violence and as well as just the workload for the women, but what else? Yeah, so when we look at who's actually in place in the refugee camps, it's disproportionately adult women and their children. Um, that doesn't mean that men aren't part of the picture. Um, what it means, though, is that men may not be in the camp or the settlement. They may have stayed home to take care of property and farms at home. Or um, in the case of host communities, they may have migrated to cities or larger urban locations in search of work in order to supplement the family's income. So when we talk about a gender-sensitive intervention, we're not talking about just focusing on women, but rather we're, we're thinking about a community where the men may not be physically present as frequently, and the women are there for, um, you know, single working moms, essentially. Um, and so when we think about even just the physical way in which we put together interventions, we need to think about, you know, will this work? And we need to ask these women, does this work in the context of your life? Any of us who have had children know that when your kids are really little, there are constraints on when you can be away from home and how long. They've got to be taken care of in a different way than when they're school-aged. Um, and so all of these complications um, that are a part of you know, many women's lives the world over, uh, apply both to these host communities and these refugees as well. And so when we're thinking about interventions, we can't just think about, you know, what's the technology that works best? We need to think about what's the technology that works best in a context where women with usually pretty significant family responsibilities are the primary adults in the circumstance. At the same time, still thinking about the men who, who will be there from time to time and who do have um, a cultural and social and emotional role, obviously, um, but who may just simply not be there for extended periods of time um, because they're off doing other things that are important for the family. Right. Um, thank you, Ruth. So let's get into a little bit of the detail of the work that you're carrying out. Mary, could you tell us more about um, what you're doing in the refugee context in East Africa to address energy and food security? The work that uh, we are involved to address energy and uh, food insecurity in refugee settlements, uh, we have several initiatives. One of the initiatives is that uh, we are looking at uh, resource 
recovery and reuse for food and energy security in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda. And uh, some of the interventions in this resource recovery and reuse initiative is that we are looking at composting organic residues for biofertilizer. And the other one, we are looking at using gray wastewater, for example, from kitchen, from bathrooms, for small space agriculture or kitchen gardening. And then we are also looking at uh, turning organic residues into fuel briquettes for cooking energy. The other thing we are looking in this resource recovery and reuse initiative is how these refugee and host communities can uh, grow multipurpose trees, such as fruit trees, fertilizer trees, and using the plumings or the branches for firewood. It's, it's kind of growing energy, but also getting the benef other benefits that trees have. This we are building on some initiatives that we've been carrying out in Uganda, for example, where C4 ICRAF has established a training center in a refugee settlement with the tree nurseries. And refugees have access to go to the tree nurseries, they get training and get trees that they can be able to go and plant. Then we are also looking at the, the firewood that has sustainably been produced. We are looking at how it can be efficiently utilized, drying it properly and using it in a more efficient uh, stoves. Are we thinking about this resource recovery and reuse for food and energy security in refugee context? One of the things that forms the basis of this work is looking at it from a circular bioeconomy, capturing the bioresources for food and energy. And what we realize is that uh, in this refugee settlement, there is already some form of agriculture, agroforestry that's going on, but it's facing the challenges of water shortage and poor soils, because most of these refugee settlements are based in the dry runs. And that is why we are looking into how resources can be recovered to improve soil conditions and provide irrigation water. What we hope to find or to achieve in this project is that we are planning to train 3,600 people on these uh, resource reuse and uh, resource recovery and reuse initiatives for food and energy security. And we are working in both the refugee and the host communities from an integrated perspective, because these are two settlements with a continuum, an exchange and flow of resources. The other initiative that uh, we are also working on, uh, this is C4 aircraft is growing trees in refugee and host communities in Cameroon. This work is under the governing multifunctional landscape. And uh, this project that is being implemented in Cameroon applies a landscape approach, an approach that is addressing cooking energy needs and uh, mitigating environmental impacts. Thank you, Mary. That's quite a bit of work going on there. Ruth? Um, 
Could you tell us um, about some of the work that you are doing? So what we're essentially talking about here is, is bringing new approaches and um, potentially some new technologies um, to help address some of the outstanding food security and energy needs. And if, if you look at the history of adoption um, of new technologies, um, one of the things that you'll notice is that what can seem like a, a, a technically really great idea um, can fail to take off in communities because there is an unanticipated barrier. Um, and sometimes those barriers are physical, but frequently they can be cultural or social and have to do with um, roles that people feel comfortable um, fulfilling. These kinds of cultural and role issues are not insurmountable, but if you don't know that they exist, then you can't figure out ways around them. And so one of the things that's really critical in all the projects that we're working on is to talk early and frequently um, with members of the community and create an environment in which they feel comfortable um, explaining if there is some aspect of this project that requires them to do something that isn't culturally acceptable and then to work together with them to figure out um, what would be culturally acceptable and sometimes that's going to mean you know a compromise and sometimes that's going to mean that we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out another way but if you want a project to work, it has to work for the people who are supposed to benefit from it. The other thing that I would say is that, that one of the things that uh, guides us as we consider what kind of interventions to suggest in these situations is an awareness that if women in particular, but also children, or basically anybody who's involved in um, sourcing wood fuel can do that without having to walk for kilometers at a time, that's an a priori benefit. So anything we can do, this, this recycling and reuse and making sure that everything that's being produced in these locations is immediately being reintegrated and reused either to improve soil quality or to improve uh, availability of energy or uh, to, to provide additional water. You know, you use your bath water that then goes immediately um, to water your plants. All of these things prevent people from having to trek long distances and um, they reduce the economic cost of producing food or energy. So anything we can do to keep the costs and I'm going to use a jargon term here, the supply chain short. What this means is that local is better. It's less expensive and it doesn't involve uh, transport, which is uh, difficult, expensive, and ultimately physically exhausting if it requires that people um, move across large spaces on foot. So those are sort of guiding social principles that we use um, as we're thinking about um, how to address some of these um, issues. Great, thank you very much. So as we wind up, um, very briefly, what should be done for sustainable development in refugee contexts? Um, Mary? Um, to ensure 
sustainable development in leverage context. It's good to apply an integrated approach that considers the refugee settlements and the host community settlements as one landscape because it's a continuum. And uh, secondly, efforts addressing food security should include cooking energy as one agenda. The refugees and host communities should be supported to grow their own food and energy to complement the dwindling food aid. As Ruth has said, it's important in this uh, development of local resilient food and energy systems. And finally, development in refugee context needs to consider environmental management as a priority. Thank you, Mary. Um, over to you, Ruth, now. So in addition to the things that Mary has mentioned, I would mention that it's absolutely critical to think about host communities and larger national contacts, as well as refugees. Uh, refugees will not flourish if the countries that are hosting them and the local communities in the areas in which they are settled are not also benefiting. And that needs to be a part of any policy consideration. Stability for one means stability for the other. The second one, I would, I would just re-emphasize um, what Mary has also mentioned, that particularly now, but this has been true for a long time, we need to think about building a network of local, regional, and Africa-based food systems, food and energy systems. Um, development really has to be first and foremost in East Africa about what benefits East Africans. And from the perspective um, of the U.S., I th think this would be true for the EU as well. Um, when we're thinking about where we put our development money, we really need to think about what will benefit Africans. And if we benefit from it in the long run, that's fine. But it has to be primarily about um, what works for the individuals in those particular circumstances. And the idea that somehow both U.S. business interests and refugees and host communities are going to benefit at the same time, it just doesn't work. And it ends up disadvantaging some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. So if we're going to be in the development business, we have to be all in. And we have to be all in um, for the benefit of our, our colleagues and friends on the continent. And certainly given the relative wealth of the United States, there's really no excuse not to be doing that work in that way. Great, thank you very much, Mary and Ruth. Um, to our listeners, that's all for today. Thank you all for listening and don't forget to subscribe on the link provided. See you on the next episodes and keep safe, safe everyone. Bye-bye.